2: Welcome back. It is again the Book Riot Podcast. Today we are issuing our normal, new, cool, and we're talking about in the world of books and reading to our favorite reads of the year. I'm, I'm thinking of this, I've now tried to metaphorize this nine different ways <laughs> that I'm not talking about favorite, I'm not talking about best, that I like the most. I'm calling them time capsule reads. Meaning... Ooh, okay. I'd put them in my own time capsule, and if I had to come back and I could only read certain books from 2021, these would be in my time capsule. These are the ones that I want to make sure I have read. So this this there's, this is useful for a couple reasons. One is you can put painful subject matter in there, mm-hmm. right, and not have to say that she said was your favorite book of 2020 because it sounds kind of weird, right? You just, it's just, It's a weird way of saying that. Or your your favorite, your most enjoyable, but these t- these represent what you want out of reading in aggregate or by themselves, as the case may be. Um, I did come up with five picks. I threatened that maybe four because the world of I'm too good for five. My taste is too good, Rebecca. I couldn't come up with five. I didn't you know, come up with five, and I got a couple of honorable mention-y kind of things to do. Um, while we're there, did you rank yours five I, to one? I
0: did not. They're that? roughly, okay. on my list, they're roughly in the order that I read them this okay. year.
2: Um, yeah, mine aren't ranked either. Um, but
0: I have, like, we could do kind of categories or
2: Yeah, I'm not are... sure. We're going to talk. You, yeah. You've got five. I got five a couple yeah, yeah. honorable mentions. Let's do a sponsor. And I kind of want to start with honorable mentions real quick before okay. I get I don't want to save it to the end. So let's do that when we come back from the sponsor break.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. So, Negative Space by Gillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality, and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student, but how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic focused. And it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to WW Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet. We Dare You to Try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Seller and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book titled The Dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is the perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more about it at getunderlined.com so again this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong there are dark secrets a twisty plot and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes so if you you know it's graduation season you want to revel in that but like make it scary you know what I mean pick up the dare by Natasha Preston and thanks again to underline for sponsoring this episode <laughs>
2: I have two honorable mentions. Do you have any honorable mentions? I do. I have a couple. Okay. Why don't you start then? All
0: right. My first honorable mention, oh, I think I'm going to toss it to, I'm still in the middle of this book, but it's one that I know I'm going to be referring to and widely recommending. Um, it's called Set Boundaries, Find Peace by Nidra Glover Tawab, um, who is a therapist who works extensively with people around what boundaries are and how you can operationalize that in your daily life in all kinds of ways. She's basically working from the premise that most of the problems or many of the problems people show up with in therapy aren't actually about those like situational things or something about yourself. It all kind of comes down to what are you looking for from this interaction and have you communicated it clearly to Mm. the person on the other end? Which was a really, I think, useful simplification and and reframing for me. I resisted picking this up um, because it's like, okay, I understand what a boundary is. I've been to therapy, but so many people that I know and trust hmm. recommended it and said it was useful for them and there is just so much good stuff and honestly we could all probably like reread a book like this on january 1st of every year and the world would be a little bit better Totally
2: agree <laughs> you recommend it to me i've already bought it i'll be reading this also as someone who has spent some time thinking about their own mental health and patterns you're trying to break mm-hmm. you know look i'm in i'm from kansas <laughs> you know the boundaries here here's how we expect boundaries to work in kansas that everyone agrees on them, and yet no one says a word about yes. them yes. And they're all supposed to be the same. <laughs> those just... are the three th- Somehow those three things are how it's supposed to happen, right Yeah I'm sure yes your Yeah. I am well, also similar. from
0: Kansas, and yes. it's like, I will be over here doing this thing from which you will magically divine what my expectations are. Mm-hmm. and I will never have to comment on the ways that you have disappointed me or harmed me. Because you'll just, any variance is,
2: is uh, hostile. (laughs) Right. Um, and any, um, suggestion that you want something for yourself is, um, yeah, it's basically mean and, um, yeah, not a nice thing to do. So, I will be reading this, looking I some, I, th- I do think when you and I talk in our work situations mm-hmm. about how it's like kind of a running joke that shockingly communicate, more communication <laughs> helped this situation, mm-hmm. right? Uh, how could, how could we ever guess that? And I think a lot of it, like 80% of the time what we're talking about is communicating boundaries. Yes. <laughs> what, what are we actually communicating? I think so much of it is actually just the expression, clarification, elucidation, or collaboration on mutually determined boundaries is usually what we're talking about when we talk about Yeah, and I, and expectations are a kind of boundary I would throw in there too. Yes, as well.
0: yeah, it's, totally. It's its kind of thing. And yeah. I think that the conversation about boundaries can sometimes come across as though when you're stating one to a person, you have to like hang a lantern on like, and now Jeff, here is my boundary about this thing. And that it has to be some like very stilted, formal kind of thing.
2: You're like an emotional drill sergeant of some kind. Right. That's where you go and this is where I go. Exactly,
0: right. And, you know, I think uh, Tawab really understands that like that's not how conversation works and that talking to people about these kinds of things can be difficult anyway without, you know, setting off the sirens that you're about to put down a boundary uh so she offers a lot of sort of constructions for like and here are some ways that you might say this in a conversation here are some ways you might respond if a person pushes back mm. on this thing mm. but if you it, definitely if you grew up in uh, the midwest or the south like like we did, and the idea of disappointing someone or um, mm. it, pushing for your own needs to be met might make you feel mean, or I don't know. Especially if you are, were socialized as a woman, um, th- there's incredibly useful stuff in here about like this is not a mean thing that you were doing. This is just a thing that you were doing, and here's how to sort of navigate and make it feel a little bit more natural, maybe a little bit less difficult over time. Um, just tons of examples and broken out for like the workplace and families and romantic. Relationships relationships and, uh, money specifically. And I, I really yeah. appreciate the breadth of it. I've, I have also been recommending it to like everyone that I know. I, I just kind of do feel like we should all in the world have to read books about boundaries.
2: <laughs> yeah. My honorable, that's a really good, I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to that. My, my honorable mention is in the same vein, not at all in terms of content, but in terms of probably everyone should read a book like this once a year. Mm. Um, it's called Winning the Loser's Game. It's the eighth edition of Winning the Loser's Game. I have not read all previous eight, seven editions. I have read one previous edition. Um, and I think it's probably, I've read almost all of the canonical books about um, investing in the stock market mm-hmm. that are along the, most people should just buy an index fund and that's it. And this is the best of these. And because the best of them for a variety of reasons. One is explains why and you know the math of it, but also the psychology of it. But it also has incorporated in the last edition um, behavioral economics and behavioral oh. psychology around what we do as people who are also investors. I think now is a really interesting time for people to reimagine or rethink or to think for the first time about how their relationship with their long-term investments, especially as I see people buying Bitcoin or you know NFTs of GIFs, of, of YouTube videos, go, go have fun. But if you haven't read either this book or a random walk down Wall Street by Burton McKeel or one of John Bogle's books or one up on Wall Street, I mean, there's a whole this is a whole genre of trying to get people to understand that for even the very smartest of us, it's probably best. In fact, empirically best for us to buy index funds and hold them for the rest of our lives as our as our primary tool of building wealth. Um, get yourself a certified financial fee-based advisor and have, you know, asset allocations and other things, are your goals are. But don't try to pick stocks. For the love of Pete, don't buy gold or um, NFTs or, you know, mean, game stonks. Don't do that stuff. There's a lot of 26-year-olds out there that I, I wish would read this mm-hmm. book and realize what's going on. It's not super fun, But it's the clearest, most interesting elucidation. There's not a bunch of charts. There's not a bunch of stats. There's not a bunch of you would have outperformed by 11% if you take into fees and accounts, uh, fees and um, taxes into it, which is definitely true. And you need to know that. But basically, the thesis is there are more people with more sophisticated tools managing more information in the stock market than ever before. Why exactly do you think you can beat all those people, you yourself? And you should answer, I cannot, (laughs) most of us cannot answer that question in the affirmative, even I'm interested in capitalism writ large and stocks and bonds and businesses. And it's a humbling and actually liberating thing, um, frankly, in the end. So that's Winning the Losers Game by Charles Ellis in its eighth edition out now is my honorable mention
0: i have not read that one but i will second the emotion especially if you are one of the like aforementioned 26 year olds who's thinking about what to do with your new disposable income that in educating yourself about it becoming financially literate and understanding that usually the sexy solutions are not the most effective long-term plan (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> counting on winning the lottery it turns out is not the most effective it's very tough in
2: you know it's there i've been through uh, i probably told you this story about how i got to receive part of my inheritance from my grandmother a very you know low five digit low actually mid mid four digits like five grand from my grandmother contingent upon me reading an investing book right the motley uh, right. fool's mm-hmm. complete guide to stocks and Bonds, right and that was in 1999 at the height of pre height of the dot-com boost. So I went through that one, interested party, lost a bunch of my index fund there. Also then through the housing bubble. So I'm old enough now, Rebecca, that I've seen a couple of these, mm-hmm. right? So, but if you're 22 now, you were 12 years old in 2011, three years after the housing crash, right? You haven't seen one of these. And there's this thing that people say that inve- every generation's investors needs to get slapped in the face mm-hmm. before they wake up and realize what this they- And I think there's a generation out there that hasn't been slapped in the face. Um, And maybe you need to. I'm not exactly sure. I hope not. I think it's avoidable. Um, But the other thing that's nice about it, if you're not super jazzed about doing any kind of investing, it's liberating because the solution is actually pretty simple. You know, get yourself a 401k, buy an S&P 500 fund or a total market return fund, contribute as much as you can, especially in your tax advantage accounts. And forget
0: about it mm-hmm. until you're
2: sixty-two or sixty-five. Yes, so, there you go. I think the financial advisor or who one like lives
0: it. in my house would agree with all of this. I was going to say
2: Bob isn't going to get mad at me, right? No, I think yeah.
0: Most people in you know average income brackets who are just saving for their retirement and trying to put their kids through college, if that's a if that's one of their financial goals, are going to be mm-hmm. really well served by like pretty basic, pretty unsexy investing and right. it's because we know how it functions over the long term and people know how to manage that in the long term to account for you know spikes and dips like there were huge spikes and huge dips early in covid and people who were in you know very stable long term investments over time That's all going to be just a blip on their their balance sheets. And that kind of longevity is important, even though the slot machine is the most behaviorally compelling thing. Like that's what you're doing with a game stonk is pulling the slot Mm -hmm. machine. And that's a dopamine explosion, but not the plan for, you know, having security when you're an older person.
2: Yep, that's right. I mean, the things you want to focus on is how long you're invested and how much you are invested. And what you buy is actually fairly straightforward, um, which is kind of remarkable. So that's my number one honorable mention pick any other honorable mention picks for you
0: yeah i just though? had a couple that i enjoyed but would not rise to mm. time capsule status um i really enjoyed malibu rising by taylor jenkins Reid, and i, I needed... wondered
2: if this was going to make an appearance yeah you tell me about that. it
0: was really fun it's a perfect summer book um yeah i probably you know i'm not going to go back and like reread it a bunch of times but i'm going to think fondly of the weekend i spent reading it and I think it was number one or two on my picks for our summer draft so I wanted yep. to follow up on that I also really enjoyed While Wild Justice Sleeps by Stacey Abrams which ah, is cool. a thriller set in and around the Supreme Court and had some like Dan Brown kind of surprises to it so that was the first one of Stacey Abrams's books that I've read I haven't read any of her um, romances that she wrote under the name Selena Montgomery but I might now because that thriller moved along and I really also liked this is like wheelhouse selections. I liked Cultish by Amanda Montell, which is about the linguistics of cults mm. and like the language patterns that cult leaders and then cult adjacent groups like Soul Cycle um, or MLMs use to get people on the hook and then keep them attached. It doesn't quite go to the level of like how deep manipulation works. It's pretty pop sciency, but really, really interesting. What about
2: you? That sounds good. My last honorable mention is um, Melancholy One, World Travel by Anthony mm. Bourdain. Um, it's not good. I mean, let me put it this way. It's incomplete. It's an artifact. It's It goes into the category of unfinished posthumous work like The Last Tycoon by F. Scott. You know, th- this is a genre that's out there that gets published. Something that was in... Um, in process while the author died or a manuscript that was brought back out after the author has died to, you know, one last or to capitalize or to get it out there. Pick, pick how cynical you want to be about this one. This one's sad because it's over mm. and the document itself is, is a marking of the overness of it. The, the way that it's set up is Bourdain's own words are highlighted in blue bold text. And uh, Laurie Wollever, who is the co-author and has collaborated with Bourdain on cookbooks and some other things, basically fills in the connective tissue. And there's more of of Wollever than there is of Bourdain. And the Bourdain that's there sounds like Bourdain, but you can tell it's pulled out of snippets of blur, not blurbs, but like TV hits or other kinds of writing or notes that he had. And it doesn't have enough of that together to be an Anthony Bourdain book. Mm -hmm. Um, I picked it up knowing what it was and thinking I would like, it's, it's organized by city and country and sort of like kind of picking it up kind of like a coffee table book or between, but it's, it's too sad of a reminder Um. of what could have been um, and what was lost. So for those of us who are Bourdainists, Bordanities, (laughs) Bordenites, I'm glad it's on my shelf um but I'll be surprised if I open it too much, um, and it's this si- it's really the sign and symbol of the abruptness, the incompleteness, the dissatisfaction um, and, and the real sadness of, of Bourdain, losing Bourdain, when he clearly had more to give in this regard, even as his own life was so hard, clearly for him to take, um, that there was more here, and it's too bad that this could have been real special and maybe a capstone kind of a work. Um, and one that would have been more experiential, like you could go to the places in El Salvador. And I, and I, it was funny because I, I opened it up. I got it and I opened up first. It was a Friday afternoon. And I was like, Portland is one of the few American cities with a thing. So, of course, I opened to Portland. And there's two recommendations there, a Pizza Shoals and Voodoo Donuts. And it just so happens that I had just ordered Pizza Shoals for for to mm-hmm. pick up for right then. Um, it's not that weird because we have it every Friday now because we're COVID spoiled about being able to pick this stuff up. But I was like, Oh, okay, this is a time. I'm I'm putting a bow on this and maybe at some point I'll come out. But it's it's a memento, I guess, is a way of thinking about it, as much as it is something to sit down and read. Uh, also saw the trailer recently for this Roadrunner documentary about Bourdain, which I'm not sure I can look at directly without yeah, welling up. Same. Um so I'm honorable mention. I'm glad it exists, but I'm sadder that it has to exist in this way.
0: As I much as anything. I have I'm really glad that you explained all of that. I've been holding off on reading it because you asked if I had read it yet and you were like, mm-hmm. don't do it yet. I'm going to talk about it on the show. And I, I'm i kind of in the place where I think maybe it's just going to live on my shelf and I'm yep. going to think about reading it a couple times yep. a year. And I'm just... It's might... there
2: is as important as if it's good.
0: Yeah, going. I just yeah. might not ever actually do it. I don't know if I mm-hmm. need to be sadder or sad again. I think I'll always be sad <laughs> about having mm-hmm. lost him. Um, but man, I'm grateful to Lori Williver for gathering all of that and doing the work of putting it out in the world though. And she's, she seems to really be working on maintaining that legacy and following through for the folks who followed his career. And I'm, I'm appreciative of that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's t- It's tough. And I think I looked, I was like, what are other people thinking about this? And again, Amazon reviews are what they are. Everyone knows grains of salt spin around everyone knows. And so many people were disappointed Mm -hmm. in one starring two starring it. And I I could understand that they wanted the full, they wanted the real McCoy here and it's not that, but I think you have to understand what it is. Maybe they shouldn't have published it. Maybe it's a cash grab, you know, that's what people are saying and this is cheap and a rehash and you know, whatever. I think of it more like a scrapbook. Hmm. I think of more of as a, you know, kind of a, um, the slideshow at the end of camp that shows you all the pictures from your week at camp right that you just had um, that's bittersweet nostalgic and a f- you know just an echo of the actual thing itself but i don't I don't begrudge um will ever or i'm not even sure who the publisher is on this um echo doing it. I think people who understand what it is will be glad it exists, but you got to know what it mm. is and what it isn't and that's super important at this point um Let's see. Uh, Let's do a quick break, and then we'll get into our actual time capsule picks here.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Kalyan Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Then you have Claire Biggs, who is the epitome of sunshine. She's always loved Gibsey, her brother's friend and her favorite neighbor. She also has always seen a side to him that no one else seems to notice. And she becomes determined to tame her wild at heart childhood best friend.
2: All right, Rebecca, you're up first. Where do you want to begin?
0: All right, I want to start with one of my favorite novels of the year, Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead. Mm. This is a big book. It's like almost 630 pages long about a woman, Marion Graves, who um, is orphaned as a kid and goes to live with an uncle in Montana and somehow develops the dream of becoming a pilot it's 1914 when she um is a baby so that's you know it's set mostly in the early 1900s and there are not many female pilots there's not a lot of access to this stuff also they live in the middle of nowhere in montana but she wants to become a pilot and she manages to um and then wants to circumnavigate the globe by flying over both the north and south poles so like a vertical (laughs) circumnavigation Mm. Mm -hmm. Uh, um one like an epic novel in the sense of there's multiple generations we see um some of the life of her parents some of the life of people in future generations there is this like big cast of characters that moves all over the story she has a, a you know a difficult childhood um and falls into a marriage with a wealthy bootlegger because he's going to bankroll her learning to fly and then having a plane but he's a bad dude um lots of trigger warnings for the ways that relationships can be bad and and unhealthy there. Um, And she just has this fascinating life. This is fundamentally a novel about a woman who's marching to the beat of her own drum in a time where women didn't have access to the kinds of things that she wanted to do with her life. And she is like scrappy and goes for it anyway. And Shipstead, shows that in all of the grittiness and the struggle. It doesn't gloss over, you know, like, well, I had to do some hard work, but now I'm here. Like, she really, really dives into it. Um, there's just so much heart. And I think that if this were 300 pages shorter, which it doesn't need to be, like, this it, mm-hmm. it's a big juicy novel. I read A Galley back in the winter, and it was a great thing to spend, like, cold winter weekends with. I think you could enjoy a very nice week on the beach with it this summer It would keep you great company. It's very absorbing. But if it were shorter, I think that it would be getting packaged as like the book club pick of summer. Um, It's just a hard thing. It's a big ask to do, you know, 630 pages for a novel like this. But I really enjoyed the reading experience of it. I found myself like thinking about Marion when I wasn't reading. And then I have thought back to it. More than I expected to in the months since, which I think is a pretty good sign for I want this in my time capsule. I want us to continue to get more stories like this that imagine lives of people who were not doing what was popular or what was even allowed of them at the time. Um, and there's you know interesting and complicated stuff around gender and sexuality here as well that I think Shipstead navigates um, pretty masterfully. In just dropping this real daredevil, strong woman into a world that is not ready for her, but she insists on making her place.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm glad you picked it, I because I hoped you would because I was <laughs> thinking about it. But I, I was like, I don't want to. I think we're going to double up and go through a couple of days. I thought mm-hmm. it was great. I, I agree with you. I, I don't think I wanted it to be shorter. I think if it were shorter, it, mu- it might get a little more traction. Yeah. The only. We were talking about It Books in an earlier episode, and I was going back through my mental file of It Books, and the only long one I could think about that wasn't Fifty Shades was The Goldfinch, um, mm -hmm. which was clearly the It Book of like 2017, maybe before then at this point. And it's pretty long, but it has something else going for it that The the Great Circle doesn't, that that I haven't thought about enough to even put my finger on, but if it was... If the Great Circle was a little punchier is the wrong word, but if it was a little less circumspect, a little less circumnavigating mm-hmm. uh, than it was, it might be getting some of that. But I, for one, am glad it's not. For my reading experience, that's not what I wanted. Yeah. Maybe for Shipstead's royalty check, maybe <laughs> that's what would have been better. But who am I to say on that particular one? I thought it was great. Probably, well... I'm not sure I'll give some context but that might have been my favorite literary fiction mm-hmm. read so far but the one I picked the literary fiction I'm picking um, no that's not true that's not true I'm saving that for my number one book which is I think for me there's a clear head and shoulder number one oh. um, but for my second favorite literary fiction of the year that may or may not include The Great Circle <laughs> because I'm equivocating and cheating <laughs> is Whereabouts by Jhumpa Lahiri ah. very slight 170 it's like kind of the opposite of The Great Circle in so many ways it's contemporary it's slight. We don't know who anyone's names is. Almost nothing happens. <laughs> um, basically, it is a woman who's about my age, I would say, though maybe I'm Rorschach testing that a little bit. There's so so few details are given. Who's in a transitional moment? Um, she is coming out of a relationship with someone who turns out to be a bad person. Not not abusive, but a liar. Um, misrepresents their relationship. Um, she's teaching at a Italian, um, university. She teaches literary something. She has some acclaim, but not too much. At first I thought it was Lahiri writing as from Lahiri's point of view, but then I realized that was wrong. I also realized that was wrong is that Lahiri is not writing it from a Indian American expatriate's point of view. I mm-hmm. believe this is supposed to be a native Italian woman living in a sized Italian town, living her... Italian life. Interesting. And that was interesting, which I guess I shouldn't be surprised because Lahiri is basically Italian now. She's writing in Italian. She's writing about Italian. She's not writing about or coming back to America that much anymore. And at first I was like, what is this? Is just, just she trying to write in Italian for fun? But really, I think what struck me is that the title kind of unlocked a little bit is about this is someone who's at a particular moment in their life between things trying to figure out what they want to go. And instead of going backpacking through Europe, she's just wandering piazzas in her Italian town and having dinner and having chance encounters with people and talking about how hard it is to talk to her mom and not really being fulfilled by work and maybe wanting to be in a romantic relationship and maybe not and maybe wanting to sow her uh, a sort of a second quarter life crisis in Mm -hmm. terms of an existential one, not in terms of behavioral one. She's not going to like join a rock band or pick up powdered drugs or anything like that and her version of that is taking a sabbatical into a different part of Italy and the book ends with her still at a loose end but going somewhere else Mm. and I think the titular whereabouts is it's almost it almost feels to me like a a a counterpunch to the I'm gonna find myself by going to Europe book because here's a young woman in Italy uh, who teaches literary work has all the things that would be available that would be sort of attractive by it to an eat, pray, love sensibility. And to quote the Emerson, your giant goes with you wherever you go. The things that she needs to figure out aren't figured out by eating really fresh tomatoes in Italy. Right. Or trying to find a swarthy Italian lover for six weeks. Um, It's that if you're not sure what you want to do, if you miss your father who was also a bad guy, but you still miss him. And if your mother doesn't understand you and you've been jilted, and you're at a point in your life where you need to figure out what you're living for. doesn't matter if you're a Sheboygan or in Antarctica or in Rome or this unnamed Italian town, that your giant is with you. And no amount of beautiful light, no amount of wandering in cappuccino and pasajadas in the evening is going to fix that for you. You still have the same issues and the same issues are going to be following you wherever you go. And so at one point at the end I'm sorry, this is spoiling. I should have said at the end when she sort of takes off again, this is not the most plot heavy. It's You're here for the hang. You're here for the vibe. You realize that she is going somewhere else, but she's the the luggage she's carrying with her is herself, and it's not going to be any different there unless she makes it different and figures out to be different. I thought about it a lot. About two-thirds of the way through, I was like, well, this is nice. She's a beautiful writer, even in translation, because someone else translated her from Italian back into English, which is a weird thing, mm-hmm. but so it is. But I really, have, it's really stuck with me um, that it is a portrait of aimlessness.
0: Oh, um,
2: that is really, really beautiful and searching, and I, I think poignant in its own. Poignant with a little more of a point than sometimes we give. You know, poignant can be used as sort of a dismissive, as like it's not about nothing. This is poignant that has a kind of poking, pricking, um, kind of a painful poignancy, because I think this is something we see in people and even we feel in ourselves at, at various times. Like, what does it all mean? What am I trying to do um, if I were only on vacation, if only I had a different life? Well, the thing about having a different life is you need to have a different life. And that's not where, the, that's not where, that's what. Um, I found it very moving. So that's Whereabouts by Jhumpa Lahiri.
0: Oh, I'm going to hold on to that one, maybe for some cold weather. I'd be fascinated to
2: hear. At some level, I kind of hope you don't hate it, um, <laughs> you know, because I'm fine with it, my own experience of it right now, but I also be, I haven't looked at reviews or anything else because that's not what I do, yeah. um, especially, and, and I didn't, unlike with the Bourdain, I didn't feel a need to be like, what were other people thinking about this? So anyway, that's Well, that's
0: telling in its own way when the, when, that, when the reading experience is so self-contained that that's all you yeah. need.
2: I was also a one-sitter sitting outside on a sunny day. Okay. So, you know, that's one of those where I think the setting was influential. Oh, I'm not I sure see. how exactly. So maybe I
0: meaningful. shouldn't read it when I'm trying to avoid, like, an existential crisis at 35,000 feet. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, maybe not. <laughs> okay.
2: Maybe not. Maybe not. All right. You're up next.
0: Um, My next one... I- I would have gotten to this book eventually, but we read it for the show and I'm glad that I had to read it quickly because Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro is going to go down as one of my favorites of the year. I think it's going to be a novel that I think about for many years.
2: My number one pick just to get it out there. That that was going to be my, that's my favorite book of the read. That's my favorite, you know, capture it, put it in a jar, make sure you don't lose it. And
0: I have found it to be widely recommendable in a way Mm. that, I didn't expect it to be like, Bob and I were in the Outer Banks last month. We went hang gliding. Our guide was talking to me about what he likes to read. And I think I was kind of fresh off Clara and the Sun at that moment. So it was also top of mind. Mm -hmm. But he was like, yeah, I just picked up. He was telling me about reading a lot of sci-fi and that he had liked The Martian. And we were talking about N.K. Jemisin. And I asked, like, well, you know, have you picked up anything lately? And he said, yeah, I was just in the airport last week. And this is like a surfer looking dude. Like picture who you think is teaching hang gliding lessons in a beach town. And it's that guy. Yeah. His name was Wolf. Um, (laughs) I'm not lying. And and he's like, yeah, and I just picked up this book by, I can't, I don't remember his name, but it's called Clara and the Sun. And I was like, oh, "Oh, what do you think about it so far? Are you liking it? He was like, he loved it. I've recommended it. I think that liberated me for who my mental model was Mm -hmm. of a person I could recommend Dummies like
2: us is all you had in your mind, (laughs) 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 not Sky Wolf.
0: Yeah, like Ishiguro is this like I have I picture like quiet literary reader, you know, and that's that thing that he does so well. But something about what the book's subject is and that you're in the head of an artificial intelligence, but also that she's just so carefully and closely observing the world and that contrast, I think it's just a great story. You could read it on the level yeah, of just being is. like, this is a great story. And I was, you com- want to find
2: out what happens. There's that, right. there's, a, there's, a, and, t- there's a narrative tension underneath it. That's And point,
0: I was you know. compelled by it. And then if you want to have an existential crisis with it, I think you certainly could because he draw- <laughs> he does all that work of here is humanity observed from the outside. And if this is what artificial looks like, then what makes us authentic? Um, I've thought, I've just thought about it so much. And I feel like I will want to reread Clara and the sun. And yeah. I, yeah, yeah, tell me more about it being your number one. I was hoping it would be on your list.
2: Well, I mean, I think it, like you said, there's a bit of a four quadrant thing that it does. Like they say this about movies, like you want something for all the four quadrants. I don't even know what they are now, but meaning like it, it, it can do multiple things. There's the sci-fi element, which it's interesting. It's fascinating. It's a novel of ideas, mm-hmm. right? but it also has interesting characters and there's tension and it's beautifully wrought. Those are the four. What else do you want? Yeah. I don't know what else you're going for. If you don't, if you get those four things, there's, there's not much else there. It's also manageable. I think it has a good, it has a good climax, but also leaves open the end with some questions about, you know, where she ends up and everything else like that. I, we've had two listeners. I don't think I told you this, Rebecca, mm. who emailed us after the fact that we're, mad at me retroactively for entertaining the idea that she was actually swapped out. Oh good cuz i'm thought of still that,
0: mad at you about that.
2: But they but they think there's a high enough chance that it bothers them, which i think <laughs> exactly where you are, which is exactly where I wanted everyone to be. <laughs> Welcome to the high wire. Um, and so th- that can linger with you. Like i think that's a super interesting like that's a that's a better literary version of like the spinning top at the end of inception mm-hmm. actually to me. Like it's very very fascinating to think about. Um on the love, I think the thing there's a bit of this in Lahiri too, that the control is so amazing. Yeah, whereabouts, Claire and the Sun and Somebody's Daughter, and I don't know if it's it's the year where the, where people's controlling of their articulations seems especially laudable. Some of the books I read this year that I didn't particularly like were lacking control. Hmm. That the control constraint without being stultifying is a mastery to me that's grace that's elegance and that's power um that you can do at this level where you don't shy away from the thing but you're also not avoiding it and you're sort of on the edge of of really kind of like making it explicit but you're also not no one's confused about what's happening um so i think that's why for me and her the voice clara's voice is one of those literary inventions I'm not going to forget any anytime yeah. soon. I've never anything like it. And it's, it was pitch perfect for what it was trying to do. Um, and I think the thing you said about being, it's sci-fi for literary fiction folks and literary fiction folks for sci-fi. <laughs> you can like, cross each other. You both cross in the same street. It is really powerful. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be, it's an all-timer. I mean, if you're, gonna, if you're ever going to guess about all-timers, okay, won a Nobel Prize. So we're not going out on any limbs here. Um, but it feels like an all timer. Maybe so. not just because it came after Never Let Me Go, maybe won't compete with it. But I could see competing with Never Let Me Go in the fullness of time and Cash Girls Corpus.
0: And man, I don't know. Claire in the Sun has already eclipsed Never Let Me Go in oh, my there you go. personal There's pantheon. It <laughs> only
2: takes one to start the avalanche.
0: Come on over, kids.
2: All right. Wonderful. So that was you, right? And I then, mean, then I'd,
0: collective. Yeah. So you should start the next round.
2: Um, I think i'll mop up my well i don't know what to call this the man who lived underground by richard wright mm-hmm. kind of a tricky one not very long it's a posthumous work and i'd say clearly unfinished in the guard we we've covered the cover the story on the show that it wasn't published during richard wright's lifetime there was a, a short version of it that was published it's about a character who it's set in the late 40s. I want to say late 40s, early 50s, who basically is a, it's a black character who's minding his business, mowing the lawn at somebody's house, gets picked up by the cops and accused of committing a double murder because he's black. Hmm. And from there, it becomes a nightmare phantasmagoria of being subject to the system. And basically what happens, spoiler here, is he escapes... From jail, from from the cops, after being being horribly beaten, and you overhear, you understand more than the character does about the cops are saying. Like this is a overly simplified, naive character, and there's a dramatic irony that we know. You think even at the time, the reader is supposed to know that this is a horribly flawed system. The cops don't care about getting it right; they just care about getting someone. He exists in their system to fill out paperwork and let people feel better that they caught the person that did the thing. He then escapes to, he goes down a manual manhole cover and explores the subterranean world of his city Hmm. through the basements of these various cities of these various buildings. And it becomes like a reverse Inferno situation of it's hell on earth and you're seeing the underbelly and you're seeing all these other things happen And he's looking at the world from the bottom up, literally, and the things that are kept in basements and why they're there and what he does and doesn't understand. Um, I won't give away the end. But it's more metaphorical and allegorical than representative. Unlike, say, Native Son, which is very sort of realistic political fiction, this is much more like... It feels like if Kafka was um, a black writer in Chicago, Mm -hmm. this is the kind of thing he would have written. And I'd be curious about the... Influences, you know, who was Richard Wright reading? Was it Kafka? Was it um, more allegorical kinds of fable-like writing, or not? Maybe he he developed a voice of himself. I wouldn't put it past him. Um, But I'm going to be thinking about it for a a long time. I can see why it wasn't published. It would have been, let's say, misunderstood, um, in the extreme. And it's more of a literary artifact. I think if you're just as just as a standalone reading experience, it's going to be bewildering and confusing which is okay. It's not really meant to be that. It's part of Wright's wider canon. Um, But to see see behind what Wright was comfortable publishing is fascinating. And a vision that we don't often see. You could almost see like, Whitehead wouldn't write it like this, but it's almost a Whitehead conceit because it's just, it's like extra realistic. Mm -hmm. Not to use the hyper real that was the criticism of Zadie back in the day, But it's like a caricature, a pantomime, I can't quite describe, but also true at the same time um, of the world in which this this main character experiences his life um, and his experience of being, um, I guess, brutalized, abused, oppressed. Um, But I'm going to be thinking about it for a long time. It's not very long if you want to try it, but be warned that it is not something you're going to probably be comfortable reading in all the ways that that means. And that's not a critique. That's just what it is. Um, So that's The Man Who Lived Underground by Richard Wright. I'm glad it's out there. Now give me that Steinbeck werewolf novel, (laughs) cowards.
0: Yeah, I need a breather from the Richard Wright for a second. Yeah, you do. Let's see, where do I want to go? You know, I read. I have been reading. I think even more nonfiction and memoir this year um, mm. than over the last several years. Or that's what I've I've really been drawn to like people talking about their lives and lived experiences. <laughs> Maybe some of it was hunger for interaction. Yeah. Um, over if the, I can't get
2: people, let me get people talking about
0: themselves. Right. And you know, I really loved um, Melissa Phibos's previous essay collection. Um, oh gosh, now I can't remember what that one was called, but the new one, Girlhood, is a collection of essays that the the packaging of it is essays that examine the narratives that girls and women are given about what it means to be a girl or a woman to live in a woman's body. She's a cis queer woman, so it's particularly from that perspective and what it takes to free ourselves from them. And she unpacks a lot of her own trauma. So trigger warnings for both this discussion and the book itself um, for uh, sexual assault. And she talks about eating disorders as well. Um, that, you know, she talks about how she began to understand her body through other people's eyes when she's 11 years old and starts going through puberty and men are commenting on it. Um, And then beginning to understand her body as a way that she could have what felt to her like power in a moment, but understanding as a woman coming of age, like in her late 20s and early 30s that those she didn't actually feel powerful um, as she grapples with it through an adult lens. And really wrestles a lot with consent and I think the evolving understanding Mm -hmm. of what consent is um that was fascinating to me and like this book like messed me up for a couple of days Mm -hmm. (laughs) in a way that she talks about um these equations that women learn to do when we're adolescents of um gray areas maybe not Uh, It's not a wholehearted yes, it's not a wholehearted no, it's like, yes, because that's the easy path through this moment, or yes, because it's less difficult than no would be. Um, And I had not read someone who's about my age or about my stage of life reflect on those moments and the like the variety of them of the spectrum that they live on of the ways that they reinforce both the past experiences and set you up for the future experiences of them. And she's not just talking about like sex and dating, though that's a large focus of it, but all of the ways like, like how many men have put their hand on the small of my back at a cocktail party and I didn't Mm. like it, but it wasn't worth starting a thing over it. And like that kind of stuff. Amanda received so many texts from me (laughs) while I was reading this of like, I, you know have been a feminist for a really long time and have unpacked a lot of this stuff about my own experience but that was like little moments like that that are like obviously this is some kind of violation of a boundary but I'm I'm allowing it I'm choosing to allow it to happen because choosing to not allow it to happen would be causing some big scene and she sort of pushes on like well what what else is there what else is there that we could have talked about or like why not make the big scene. Um, Yeah. And that just sat me down. Um, I think if you're, uh, if you are like about our age and came of age when like consent was around no means no, but we weren't talking about affirmative consent. We weren't talking about how consent could be revoked at any time or that it was sort of a, a sliding situation that you needed like rolling consent through each escalation of an an act or of a, a relationship, how she's evolving her thinking and reframing then her own understandings of experiences that she had as a young woman is really um, sort of shakes her own foundation. And I think that if you're about, you know, in the age group that I'm in, it will probably shake yours as well. Um, it's the kind of cultural commentary through the lens of personal experience that I find to be super effective um, and also widely recommendable. You could pick this as a book club selection with a group of people that you trust and probably have a very transformative conversation um not an easy read at all i've been like hesitating to try to find a way to talk about it here but it's Mm. it's just hard to be to live in a woman's body in this world and there are certainly harder experiences certainly if you are not white it's even more difficult and she presents her own Moments with that, and how she's continuing to question it and reframe it, and these aren't just like things that happened to her as a teenager, and now she's moving forward. And I think that nudge of like, okay, I'm almost forty, but what else could I re-understand mm-hmm. that would change how I engaged in the world and might make things different or easier for women who come after me? And um, Was a real was a real push. So now I'm going you know, to take a big sip of water.
2: <laughs> you said we were somewhat glibly at the beginning of the show or I, you know, we were together about talking about boundaries, about how they're great and we should yeah. all have them and blah, blah, blah. And almost offhandedly a jovial kind of ignition. But in this case, it shows to that. If the world doesn't respect your boundaries and you want to have different boundaries, you have two choices or we have a bunch of different choices anytime. One is to let it go and, and live with what that feels like, or to be the boundary police for yourself all the time in a right. world that doesn't, have the same boundary or men especially do or people that don't and then how much energy that takes and that that aggregate amount of energy it would take some of it is it sounds like some of it is realizing that you don't have to make the decision same decision all the time and that's okay but some of it is just how how much the world asks of you to have your own boundaries mm-hmm. um, and it's almost impossible it seems like And I think you're right. Our age group, and I'm I'm sorry to lump you in with me. I'm a little bit older. Close enough. Are on this border between where that was just how things were and it wasn't even kind of was commented upon, but maybe felt and maybe beginning to think about things differently to a real different world. Um, yeah, this, and it, being a liminal kind of group is an interesting place to be yeah, in all situations, but this one too.
0: It feels akin to me to the conversation that I see parents our age having now about not forcing their kids to like hug aunts or uncles or friends if they yeah. don't want to hug and kiss yeah. them. And certainly that you were going to hug your grandma was an expectation of my childhood and I think our generation largely. that. And I think those like hands on the smalls of backs in cocktail parties is a similar kind of thing for the adult experience where it's not maybe felt as like a capital H harm in the moment, but it adds up to the message of like your your boundaries aren't totally yours to determine. There are social expectations that you allow people to breach them out of politeness and we're pushing past that in ways that i think are revolutionary i'm really excited about what i see parents talking about and i hope that we see it transform adult Mm -hmm. interactions also because that is it is so much energy and she kind of gets to that as well like what else could we have been doing in our lives if we were not (laughs) thinking this and feeling this and carrying this around
2: yeah yeah um I'm going to go quickly past my next one just because we've talked a whole, almost a whole episode about Somebody's Daughter by Ashley mm. Ford. Um, I'm not sure what else I can say about it at this point that I, you know, you wouldn't have gotten from um, the show. I, I think I'm so glad it's in the world. Been waiting for the Ashley's book to come out, I feel like, for a while, following her career even before I even, even knew the book out there. Um, and to see that while it's of, in a, tradition of a memoir of this kind it also feels really different um and the differences are about it's still in process right that she has a kind of relationship with her mother that she did and yet the book begins with her trying to keep up the relationship with her mother and it doesn't feel like she's given up it doesn't feel like she's capitulated it doesn't feel like she's wrong to still have a relationship with her mother I'm not sure I've seen something like this that deals with that kind of messiness, that kind of ambiguity, and certainly the ambiguity about her father's past, but also that she wants a relationship with him. She wants to figure out how to love him and be loved by him, but also acknowledge who he is and what he's done. And I feel like that's a bleeding edge existential Mm. way to be. Mm. That feels like acknowledging the messiness of the world we're in without having to be, to, to judge it, especially as it comes to your own personal life. Um, I think even comparing it to something, like I said in the show, I think there's, it's interesting to compare it to something like Educated by Tara Westover, where escape is natural and fine, and there's nothing wrong with escape. But what if you don't want to leave those people forever? What do you do? How do you be what kind of and I think a lot of ways Ashley is articulating things that people have already been doing about dealing with people that they want to have in their life that they don't want to expunge from their life. But also, you can't also ignore what's happened. How do you live with that? And it's new. I think for me in my own reading experience in my own like experience experience, that's the first time I think I've ever seen it articulated in that way where Mm -hmm. it's neither one thing or the other people are guilty and innocent people are good and bad they love you and hurt you um and the only way forward is unless you're going to f- forget certainly you can forget but you don't have to forget or to cut out what's a third way and i think ashley is exploring this third way that we haven't seen done really before quite and she's not done doing it it's not over Mm -hmm. this is not a guidebook to how to deal with like problematic faves in your family that's not what this is but it also isn't not that (laughs) at the same time Um, so I'm really grateful for it and um, looking forward to following what comes next whatever if if and when something is next Mm -hmm. somebody's daughter Ashley Ford good book turns out
0: yeah it is a good one. I didn't put it on my top five, but only because I knew that you were going to talk about yeah, it. There we go. So we, I did, <laughs> and I wanted I to get some other solid books. In. And you did me
2: the Great Circle Solid, so good. We, <laughs> a little, a little yeah. uh, piecing it together.
0: All works out there. Let's see. You know, my I guess my favorite. My other favorite memoir of the year so far is Miseducated by Brandon P. Fleming.
2: I haven't uh, gotten to this yet. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, Jeff, it. this
0: is like made of things that you're going to I love. Know,
2: I know, I know. I was trying, I wanted to, anyway, it doesn't matter. So I will read
0: this. Fleming, uh, is a young black writer. He had a childhood and teenagerhood where he was surrounded. Uh, similar kinds of situations to what Ashley Ford writes about. Um, there was abuse um, around him. He had siblings and relatives who were involved in gangs and gang violence. And that was his model of what it was to be a man and to be you know cool and out in the world. And he became involved in gang violence and in drugs um, pretty young. And that really shaped his adolescence. He didn't do super well in high school, but managed to get into college. And in college has a transformative experience, like just a true awakening when someone introduces him to the Harlem Renaissance, Mm. um, where this is the first time that he's reading stories and autobiographies written by black people who have experienced what it is to be black in america and getting that like oh my education and this is what the title is from was just the white version of america and no wonder i didn't see myself inside it um so just gets lit up about the harlem renaissance and cannot stop reading and it's this sort of autodidactic thing that he takes on while he you know while he's still in school and then as you know there's no zealot like the convert
2: Mm-hmm.
0: He wants to share this with everybody. He wants to share the Harlem Renaissance with everybody that he knows. He wants to help out you know, t- troubled teenagers who are struggling. He wants to like start groups where he's going to like save the kids by talking to them about the Harlem Renaissance. And of course, like the Harlem Renaissance was the magic piece for him, but mm-hmm. it's not necessarily mm-hmm. the magic for everybody else. Not a else. skeleton
2: key for everyone.
0: Right. And he writes, I think, really beautifully and so relatably about f- what the process was of figuring that out. Out of realizing that this was the thing that unlocked him and he was going to need some other framework to help other people find their things that would unlock them. It wasn't just that the Harlem Renaissance was going to be the thing, but maybe there are ideas and passion inside that that he could take. And along the way, with some very good mentors, he gets introduced to debate. um, And that becomes the framework then, is how can he mentor these teenagers into... um, learning debate skills and then Mm -hmm. learning how to engage in their lives in a different way. They, it opens up, they're able to go to debate competitions. He gets them, he calls them the scholars and he gets them like blazers that they wear when they come to the classes that he holds like on nights and weekends. So everyone puts on this new scholarly identity. That's very different from the ways that they engage out in their schools and on the streets of their home neighborhoods. And watching these kids transform by learning how to use words um to get their point across and to win their argument. And he ultimately, you know, wins he he, he creates like winning teams of high school students. Um, he gets Recruited to teach at an exclusive kind of like creatively put together private school, um, eventually gets to meet um, some of his idols and to teach at Harvard at a debate camp where, you know, he never would have dreamed that um, he could be on the faculty of Harvard. And it's just a true um just a real story of transformation that's both you know he had good guides along the way people who like saw him and pointed him in the right direction but truly did the work himself of like recognizing this is a thing that might unlock me and I want a different kind of life and then how do I continue to pay this forward how do I not pull up the ladder behind me it's remarkable and one of those like has a feel-good kind of element to it. This that There are redemption parts of this mm. story. You know, it's not... He's not done. He's a young guy still. Um, but you know he's okay um, in a way that we don't get, like, the wrap-up of somebody's daughter, just as a contrast. But I loved reading about his experience discovering those Harlem Renaissance writers. I know you're going to love that.
2: Oh, <laughs> man. Yeah.
0: And, and then how he transmutes that into something that can change other people's lives as well and just the determination uh, that is required of him to go outside of the opportunities that were available to him which were very limited when he was a kid and to 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 rethink it I think the next book I want from Brandon Fleming is like how do you do this in your life how do you be a person who can see that if I want to get outside of what is being offered to me, it's going to take a whole hell of a lot of Mm. like work and grit and it's not going to be easy and here is what you do. Um, He could like, he could definitely have a self-help moment, I think in his writing career. Um, And I'd like to, continue hearing about how this develops for him but I just found it to be so heartening um and really really beautifully written and I like I also love a writer who knows when to flex when to be like Mm. this is a story about ways that I became successful and here are some of the things that I did um and it's it's just fabulous
2: I when I used to teach more often especially for you know 18 year olds freshmen um either in literature or writing the first time you have the experience of something you care about that means a lot to you, it's on you. You get to teach it. You get to, mm. maybe you don't pick it, but you teach it for me. It was like the Iliad or leaves of grass or something like that. And you get up there and you do your full song and dance, soft shoe. You're approachable. You're affable. You're funny. You're impassioned. You're doing the best that you can about something you really care about. And half the class is checked out. Mm. You know, what's your next move is, uh, Something that most people who are in the teaching world, maybe a lot of different worlds when you're selling something, trying to convince someone of something, um, especially that's something that means to, so much to you. It can feel like all you need to do to get this is to read it. Why aren't you getting that this thing is awesome? And it's not the same for everybody. Um, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I'm going to wrap up with just page turneriest, funnest, mm. had you know maybe the best time reading it. <laughs> Uh, Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir. Um, I guess I wanted something like this. I didn't really know this. It's Andy Weir plus. I'd say at this point, are you done yet? Are you, guys, Bob? No, still riding around trying to finish it.
0: We're <laughs> we're listening to it on like every ten minute jaunt to dinner. Yeah, it's going to take a while.
2: I'm not going to spoil it anyway. So Rebecca's in the middle of it, so she can either you know affirm or, or deny what I'm about to say here. If you read The like the Martian, you get that what you like, plus you get some other stuff. It goes a level or two beyond what you're—and I don't even want to say because that's part of the fun, right? I mean, it sounds like you're part at least into a couple of these. I wouldn't even call them twists, just things that happen, subject matter that um, Weir leans into. So it's— What do you like about, what do we like, what do we talk about when we talk about what we like about Andy Weir? It's like a Raymond Carver (laughs) pastiche here. It's warm hearted. It's optimistic. It's about capability, proficiency, knowledge. Um, It's uncomplicated. And that's good and bad. I think it's uncomplicated in that the cultural political other ramifications of what happens in these books is not discussed, it's not on the table. It's I don't think beside the point is right, but it's not what this book is are about. And yeah. that's good or bad. You can take it a couple different ways. This is even more so in this regard, I think. Um but there is this sense of adventure, of problem solving, um and of proficiency, of of capability that feels affirming somehow. Like yeah. it's the world seems better because Andy Ware characters can figure stuff out. And that means ergo stuff is figure outable. Right? <laughs> it's
0: it's the like work the problem of it. Work the you know, problem. That, I'm gonna
2: science the shit out of this. Yeah, and that is both that, funny and tongue in cheek, but also earnest and real. It
0: is. And just in I think in life it's affirming and reading stories yes. like this can be affirming because sometimes Often, I think we encounter situations where people say, no, that's hard, or no, that's complicated, or no, here's, like, yeah. the thing about that that I don't like, and, I, like, idiosyncratically, a thing that's true of both of us is that our knee-jerk response to that is like, well, figure it out. Figure it out. <laughs> and Andy Weir writes entire books about people mm-hmm. just repeatedly running into those walls, being like, okay, well, how do I figure this out? Because I'm stuck in space alone, so I right. have to if I don't want to die.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's the literary opposite of I can't even in Andy Weir. <laughs> right. That, and it's- whatever whole miasma of... Vibe hang, you know, that that has infiltrated, yeah. and I'm guilty of it in my own way. But this is the I can't even is the opposite of what yeah, it's like, books
0: are. Just, he will rise to every occasion. And yeah. I will say, even though we're taking forever to finish the audio because we started it on a road trip and the book was longer than the trip, um, the, the audio is really, really wonderful. And I think, without spoiling anything, there are some voices in the book that I'd be really interested in seeing what, how they're portrayed. I'm going to have to do the print, audio
2: because I want to know, too. I know what you're talking about. But the about. way yeah. it's
0: done in audio is really creative and really fun. And one of the quirks of that is already becoming something that like, <laughs> is going to be in the idiosyncratic Shinsky lexicon for a long time, I think.
2: Yeah, the sound is really important in the story. And mm-hmm. it might, if I had known, I did it in um, ebook okay if i had known i would have my time capsule would have a note to myself who hasn't read this that says do this on audio mm-hmm. because it's really important
0: yeah I and think... you
2: get it in the book but i can imagine that done well it'll be even more yeah it, it's, it's... going to be a great movie the visual stuff all this is going to be a great movie or yeah, it's great series or whatever it's going to be if you time. have really audio...
0: yeah if you have audio available to you definitely do the audio i think yeah yeah, right. um, that's I, that's so good. I second that emotion. My final fave of the year so far, truly in Shinsky wheelhouses, um, "A Little Devil in America: Notes in Praise of Black Performance" by mm,
2: I knew you were going to pick this. I <sighs> still haven't picked this up.
0: By Hanif Abdurraqib, um, man, a poet writing cultural commentary that's interwoven with stories about his own life mm. and experiences. I just cannot think of.
2: Poet Anything memoirs. If we could get some Poet better. Chef memoirs, that's what we need.
0: Oh, Poet Chef. hmm <laughs> And each... So this is a collection of essays about black performance and its place in American culture, its significance in American culture, um, how black performance is shaped by and responds to the dominance of white culture and often how black performers are resisting the kind of performance that the hegemonic white culture demands of them um how much black art grows out of a refusal to perform those things that white culture wishes black people would perform and abduraki goes into some of his own performances Mm. um both cultural performances and individual interpersonal ones um there's some you know more like kind of heady theoretical sorts of commentary and analysis that he does. And then there's a story about the day that Michael Jackson died, the club that he was like in the basement of this local bar in Columbus, Ohio. And everyone is sitting with how complicated Michael Jackson was and how difficult that legacy is going to be. But in that moment, it's just a bunch of sweaty strangers like packed shoulder to shoulder dancing Their hearts out late at night and then what it feels like when you're that sweaty and you walk out the door into like a crisp, cool evening
1: Mm. and
0: you've had this collective experience with your community that he captures so well and he doesn't leave any of the complicatedness out of it. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of his work is interested in complicating things even more than we are. Aware that they're complicated, or he'll say, Here's one more thing about this that you might not have, like one more connection that you might not have made, or here's one more bell that this rang for me that now I will introduce to everyone else while we explore this thing together, this song together, this person in history. It's just, it's wonderful the breadth of kinds of art and the kinds of performance that he. Interrogates. It was fascinating to me, and the I guess the underlying curiosity here is something that I'm so drawn to that I loved seeing how it played out through his mind. But man, what a great what a it's a great book that not nearly enough people will read.
2: <laughs> Looking forward to it. Um, that'd be a good candidate for a chapter selection for us to do. Ooh,
0: sometime, yes, maybe, I will think when about the
2: paperback that. Back rolls mm-hmm. around have to pick something else. Well, those are our picks. I would say. I don't know. It's been a weird half year. Um, at first I was like, eh, do, do I have a real strong list, but I'm looking at it and I've got Claire in the sun. I've got a Lahiri. I've got Ford. I've got a right, a weird, difficult, right? Artifact, mm-hmm. not bad bounty for me. For, yeah. For a half year. Um, the embarrassment of riches that await us
0: in the mm. back half of
2: the year though. Um, though, you know, honestly you get a, you get those five, what else do you want? It's true. Uh, not much. Not much. Um, Rebecca, thank you as always. And uh, so ends our bonus season. We'll be back. I think, we haven't t- I think we're going to do more bonus episodes in the fall. Yeah, I think Can't so. Can't think about that right now. Fall feels like a 900 million years <laughs> away, but it's like It's going to
0: come months. quick. <laughs> I
2: know. It really always does. You can find links uh, with all the titles of all the books we talked about, bookriot.com slash listen. You can email us, podcast at bookriot.com. We will be talking about Crying in H-Mart by Michelle Zahner, who not a poet, but a musician, an indie rock musician doing food memoirs, not a poet or a chef, but a food related memoir from a musician, which should be interesting. Um, looking forward to that. Rebecca, till next time.
0: Yes. Have a good one.